Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. From Motley Fool Supernova, Matt Argusinger, and from Motley Fool Funds, Tim Hansen. Good to see you guys. Thanks How's it going? Hello. We have got the latest on retail, consumer goods, and more. We'll tell you who the front runner is to be the next CEO of Microsoft. And as always, we'll share a few stock ideas that you can put on your watch list. But we begin this week across the river in Washington, D.C., where, Tim, I'll just start with you. The looming government shutdown. Uh, who knows? Who knows if we'll even be here next week to record the show? I, I have who know, no idea. Who among us? Chris? Who among us can know? Um, this seems, though, with the countdown to September 30th, the possibility of the federal government shutting down. Maybe it's just me, but it seems like Wall Street is just sort of shrugging its shoulders and saying, "You know what? We're we're not really interested. We're not. It, we're not worried about this at all." You know, this is this is a, one of those situations where the difference between having money on the line and and just speculating leads to very different conclusions. So you go, you know, you turn on the TV and it's like, you know, I've got no money in this game, but man, there could totally be a government shutdown. And then you go to Wall Street where people are actually investing presumably based on on the health of the economy and they seem to think this is not a big deal. I agree with the latter more than the former. As I say in Texas, this is this is all hat, no cattle. I mean, the, the people are out there in Washington. It's just they're bloviating on and on and it's all about having a big public persona, but I think at the end of the day Neither side wants the government to shut down. There's no good reason why the government should shut down. But I think, you know, the, the phrase rally, we're not a politics show, but if there's been a, a more dangerous phrase, I think, to the political discourse over the past four years, then rally your base. I'm not sure what it <laughs> oh. is. Uh, Maddie, to Tim's point, it seems like in terms of Wall Street, uh, the debt ceiling, uh, which I think hits on October 17th, that that potentially has some effect uh, for investors, but in terms of the government shutdown... Right. Well, as we were talking about before the show, I think we're all looking for, forward to better commutes next week, potentially. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit rooting for a government shutdown. But no, I think, yeah, to Tim's point, government shutdown, I think it's, it's mostly a non-issue. The debt ceiling, a little more important because you wonder what's going to come out of that. What decisions are going to be made or what deal is going to be made for to you know to raise the debt ceiling and, and it seems like that's the way it's been going in Washington. It's it's extracting sort of policies and issues as using the threat of not raising the debt ceiling. And so what happens? Where are we in two weeks? That's the bigger question. Yeah, I, I mean what Tim says is spot on. I mean you got to you got to figure it, at the end of the day. I mean it's not going to be much that comes of this. But I think that something that probably sneaks uh, sneaks under a lot of people's radars is is a little byproduct of this when you have the threats of this government shutdown and, and furloughs being being enacted. Uh, you know that's when these these employees, federal employees, are then deemed either essential or non non essential, and you have to figure with this happening, it seems like every six months to a year now. I mean, you keep on having to deem a lot of people non essential, and I would think at some point those people who, you know, it just reiterated time and time again that you're non essential. You're worried about I mean, the ego. Probably going to be a little bit of employees? a bitterness factor there in your employee base at some point, right? Yeah. I mean. I mean, I'm just speculating. So the government's glass door rating is going to take a big hit next it's, week. It's yeah. Distinctly possible. I will say on a, on the on the on the debt ceiling. If you look at where the money, the smart money is, like nobody's buying credit default swaps on U.S. government debt, right? So I mean, everybody, you know, everybody, it's going to get solved. Let's move on to actual companies. Uh, J.C. Penney continues to be in the headlines, and not for good reasons. 
The stock had a 13-year low this week. Uh, at one point, it was the most traded stock uh, in the public markets. Maddie, it bounced back, but then it fell to another new low after announcing it will be offering, do I have this number right, 84 million new shares? <laughs> because, right. because they need the money? Well, this this is an absolute train wreck, and there's so many ways to go with this. But I kind of want to. There's two words that are coming to mind that are looking at this J.C. Penney story: Chinese wall. And let me explain. So earlier this summer, uh, you remember that uh, Goldman Sachs helped J.C. Penney raise about two and a quarter billion in new debt. Kind of was kind of a CEO Oldman had come back. It was kind of a way to keep things rolling and, and hopefully you know um, lead to improving conditions, uh, improving improving liquidity conditions at J.C. Penney. Well. Just you know, earlier this past week, Goldman came out, under, you know, put a bad rating on the stock, and, and actually uh, put an underperform rating on a lot of uh, JCPenney's debt, which really hurt the stock. Uh, CEO Ullman came on and said, "Hey, look, we're good. I mean, I know, I know the stock's taking a big hit today, but we have all the cash we need." Yeah, which t- turned out to be totally false, um, because as of you know, as of this past week, we know that they they're also needing to raise what amounts to about a 38% dilution to the stock. And raising that amount of money at a 13-year low is just one of the worst things you can do. But I think it's great that Goldman Sachs is also leading the sale <laughs> on those shares. And so, it, there's two ways to look at it. Either Goldman Sachs is great at playing both sides of the trade, as we know, or you can almost say, hey, the Chinese wall is actually working. Goldman Bank is doing things. At the same time, its analysts are sort of taking the opposite view of things. So, how is How is this stock not at zero, Tim? I mean, who is, who it, you is know, making any bet with the debacle, yes, all of the stuff that Maddie illustrated for this past week, but really just the last year and a half. Well, you know, it's not even just what what, what, what Maddie said about the uh, you know the debt. Well, we've got all the money we need, which, given the proximity to this capital raise, is something the SEC is undoubtedly going to look got into. To. Yeah, got to. But and then on the on the on the on the other side of that, they let Ackman and Vornado, who previously owned large stakes in the company, sell at between twelve and thirteen. Before they dropped this offering out on the market, so I mean they were letting insiders get out ahead right. of destroying their common shareholder base. I, I mean, so add to the heap of horrible concept, <laughs> debt laden balance sheet, comps tanking, like a severe corporate governance issue. Yeah, I I don't if you I don't know who owns it. Throw up my hands. I have no idea. George Soros, right? I mean, who else is in this? Well, the, uh, Kyle yeah. Bass. Kyle I mean, Bass got hammered. Yeah, Perry just, got hammered. But uh, those guys can't be happy. Uh, yeah, but they they they're not selling at least as far as we know right now. But well, I mean, the flip side of there is a lot of volume pretty, today. We don't know. Maybe they already <laughs> sold. Maybe they already sold. We've got a pretty go. easy comp they're coming up on. So there's that. Yeah, I, <laughs> well, I, I know, but I, I will say in December they're they're going to have some incredibly easy same store sales numbers. It's not to making be me want to buy granted, stock anymore. I, I think what Tim was saying yesterday um, on Twitter was just was so good because it's like, well, they might not even get through the holiday season. I mean, if they if they have to raise this type of money, they might be struggling to pay, make payroll, make payables. I mean, they might not make it to those good comps. Yeah, the, the the people in the country who should be most worried about this, besides J C Penney, common shareholders are anybody who has a receivable at J C Penney. <laughs> I mean, because you've got to be panicked, especially if you're a small business who relies on that sort of thirty to forty five day payment window to make your payroll. That's for the that's that those are the people who should be very panicked. Shares of Nike hitting an all time high this week after first quarter profits rose thirty eight percent. Jason, they're still not getting a lot out of their China operations, but things are looking really strong in the North America and Europe. Yeah, I mean that just I mean it shows you the power of really the global brand that, that Nike has built uh, up up to this point. I mean they did they saw a little trouble in some of their emerging markets in Korea and Mexico. I think with some shipping issues and China sales were down about three percent. Though I think and, and Tim, I don't know if you saw this, they apparently over the summer shipped out a bunch of uh, a bunch of NBA All Star. Stars, Kobe and LeBron and, and uh, guys like that to really push the Nike brand as they kind of try to to rebrand.
brand. They're they're uh, you know they're they're consumers out there in China. But I, you know, again, I mean, this is a this is a very strong company, and I think one of the stories that they uh, that probably doesn't get enough attention, but it's something they're really focusing on is the direct to consumer part of their business, which is you know you buy your Nike stuff online or whatever uh, from Nike itself. And I mean, those are higher margin sales, which really help bring that down to the bottom line. That, that growth in that segment was about twenty percent this quarter of the same uh, quarter last year, which which was uh, significant. And I think that's something you'll see them continue to focus on. Uh, but gross margin, you know, saw a benefit there from improved materials costs and and that direct to consumer. So uh, all in all, a very powerful brand in a big market opportunity continues to do well. I agree. Nike is a, uh, for the most part, a well-run company. Obviously, a brand behemoth. I'm surprised that the market is as excited about these results as it is today. It's up like five or six percent because we were talking about joking about J.C. Penney rolling over an easy comp. Yeah. Nike was rolling over a really easy comp, particularly on the profitability side, the margin side, due to some really bad inventory management they had about a year ago, um, which caused a bunch of markdowns in, in some of those markets. So, you know, this is a bit of a return to normalcy in terms of the. Profitability level of Nike, but the the market is now like pricing it as though it was a big improvement, and it should be a premium valuation. So I think there's a little disconnect there, and I would actually say I'd probably say that the strength they showed in Western Europe is probably more positive for the forthcoming Adidas results, uh, where they're you know they're, obviously they're very big in Western Europe, um, more so than to get too excited about Nike, although it was it was a good quarter. It's so a good not- point. I mean, it's it's at about 27 times earnings now, which is that's that's excessively high for this stock, which normally trades more in the 20 to 21 range. With the pop today, I think uh, I, I think you got to be waiting on the sidelines when you see a pop like this today. But uh, yep, BlackBerry is going private in a deal for 4.7 billion. That is a whopping three percent premium on the stock when it was announced. Tim, um, uh, it's a group that's led by Fairfax Financial. Which already owns ten percent of BlackBerry. As far as I can tell, though, they're not putting in any new money. No, I have a conspiracy theory about this. If, <laughs> oh, bring if, it you, on. if you'll entertain it. Um, so Fairfax owns ten percent, and Fairfax people may or may not know this is a Canadian conglomerate that some people refer to as like the Berkshire Hathaway of Canada, but they're not quite as good as Berkshire Hathaway. It's run by this guy Prem Watsa, and in the past, so but they're unlike Berkshire Hathaway, they're they're pretty heavily levered, and in the past they've done some. Um, let's call it creative accounting with some tax laws, carry forwards and things like that to make sure that they avoided large losses in order to make sure they didn't get downgraded, basically. Uh, this year, their insurance business isn't having a very good year. Um, they've been taking pretty big mark-to-market hits on BlackBerry. And the stock, obviously, after the uh, guidance announcement they gave last week and yep. then the week earnings they put out this week, you're probably staring down more losses. Um, people who like the deal will point to the net cash on the balance sheet and the value of the patent portfolio and some ongoing enterprise contracts that they that I think they have. Um, but my, I, you know, as you said, Fairfax isn't putting up any more money. They haven't found anybody else to put up any more money yet. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is a bit of a ruse um, to keep the stock stable through the end of the year so that they don't have to market, Just run out the clock. run out the clock on their fiscal year so that they don't show a big loss on their financial statement and risk another um, credit downgrade. I think something that may substantiate that, too, there's no breakup fee on Fairfax's side. So, I mean, they can walk. Yeah. You know, whenever whenever they decide they may want to do it, there's no breakup fee there. So, so you know, in dragging out, you know, what is it, 90 days looking for bidders? Stranger things have happened. Hmm. Meanwhile, you've got the executives at BlackBerry who stand to rake in 80 million dollars uh, if if they essentially get shown the door go, when it goes private. No, this is win-win for for Fairfax and BlackBerry if they if if the for whatever guy. reason this bid prompts somebody else to come in and make a bid because Fairfax. Stabilizes the stock, doesn't put up any more capital, and walks away. 
the guys at BlackBerry get a huge payday, and then whatever, whoever is stupid enough to come in and buy this um, gets left holding the operations bag, which is like a, it's like a cash furnace. It's it, the best way to describe this business. <laughs> See, I think that's beyond a conspiracy <laughs> theory. I think that's a good theory. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it makes sense. Uh, it just goes to something I've said before, which is my, my dream in life is to be a former CEO. <laughs> uh, coming up, fire up the DeLorean, call Doc Brown. We are going back in time to 1983. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Tim Hansen. Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a bigger winner this week than Mako Surgical. The robotic surgical device company was bought out by Stryker for $1.65 billion. Shares of Mako up more than 80% on the buyout. Why the premium? This is, Mako wasn't really actually what's the word profitable? Were they? No, no, never been consistently profitable. And you know, I, I looked I, as we talked earlier in the week. I thought the striker deal, the premium they paid was essentially just that they wanted to mow through any potential competing bids, just really put a high price out there. And Stryker is such a large company. I mean, their orthopedics business is almost four billion a year, um, and that's you know about triple the size of what they're eventually going to pay you know pay in total for Mako. Um, the deal makes sense. I, you know, Makoplasty, which is Mako's, um, you know, sort of knee robotic knee surgery implant technology, it was always kind of a, th- a little bit of a threat to um, to Stryker or an opportunity, I guess, and that's how they viewed it. So it could be creative to Stryker, you know, going forward. It's a, it's a fast growing company. I'll just say though, I work on the Rule Breakers team. This was a three time wreck for us. Really, not really successful. Our, our first wreck happened um, at, a, at a much lower price. Tended to work out, but this has been a heck of a volatile stock, and you know, I, I don't see. I feel that bittersweet. I was about say, it. You know, I was almost kind of relieved. sad to see it go. No, you know, obviously great for members who bought within the last year because it was make it was really low. This week, Amazon unveiled the new Kindle Fire HDX tablet. It is faster and cheaper. It is much cheaper, Jason. It's the, the six million dollar man. It's the it's lighter. The, the faster, cheapest version cheaper, is one hundred thirty nine dollars. I don't own any of these Kindle <laughs> Fires, but I'm questioning how. Well functioning is a tablet that's $139. Well, I believe that $139 tablet is like the first iteration, simply the small Kindle Fire, which I mean that was that was decent for when it came out. Um, we we have a couple of, of Kindle Fires in our house. My daughter's got them last year for Christmas, and so for seven and eight year old girls, it, it works very well. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit more married to my iPad, and I don't think Amazon necessarily uh, is levered to the the. Rollouts of these devices, like Apple, would be to its iPads, for example. I mean, Bezos is more focused on monetizing the use of the tablet, whether it's an iPad or a Kindle or whatever it may be. Um, I think these Kindle Fires give him a chance to experiment and try new things. And a good example of that would be the integration of the book of the Great Reads uh, acquisition there into their sort of ecosystem there, and uh, the Mayday button, which is supposed to bring up a very interactive customer uh, service experience uh, w- with the tablet. So, you know, I mean, that's why you didn't see any big reaction one way or another with with the, with the uh, tablets themselves. But I, I think it's it's something that he he likes to do. It gives him a chance to innovate and and try new things, and uh, and they'll probably continue to do well because he does such a good job of making them affordable for the masses. Uh, Tim, there's a birthday coming up in your family. Uh, thinking about a Kindle Fire tablet. I, you know, I was just I was I was giggling about and the. Pro- Prospect of Amazon changing the tagline to Kindle Fire. It's great for seven and eight year old girls. <laughs> <laughs> and it is. <laughs> I think a couple techies just died at Amazon <laughs> hearing that. <laughs> Uh, all, the website uh, All Things Digital is reporting that Microsoft's search to replace Steve Ballmer as CEO has landed upon the CEO at Ford Motor, Alan Mulally. Um, he appears to be the lead horse now. 
I, I was saying uh, earlier today, Maddie, it seemed like whoever replaces Steve Ballmer, I feel like they almost have to go outside the company. I, I think you're right. I think Microsoft is at the point where it's just there. There has to be some kind of shakeup or some kind of clash of cultures in order, you know, to really get the the company moving. Um, you know, Al Mulally came in and. He came in. He left Boeing. He was uh, head of Boeing's commercial business. Came in as CEO of Ford about six years ago, I believe. And yeah, I mean, it's it's been a, a dramatic turnaround at Ford. I mean, but that was really an operational thing, I think, at Ford. I I'm 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 trying to struggle to find out why what Alan Mulally could do with Microsoft. He's he I mean he has a home in Seattle. He's worked with uh, Steve Ballmer before, so it, it makes Boom. it sort of makes sense. <laughs> um, you know, and they've given up a lot of what I would have thought, like Don Matrick, who went to Zynga. Head of um, Microsoft's X, uh, Xbox business, which you know, really the guy responsible for building that business into a multi-billion-dollar business. I thought he might be the guy in the future, but he's now gone. So, it might make sense. It seems like the problems at Microsoft are more innovation-related as opposed to something like culture or operational, which, as you noted, Mulally's more focused on. I mean, that's why I think he was so successful at Ford because it's you know they're not really trying to innovate past the car, so to speak, but. With Microsoft, I mean, it does seem like the innovation uh, side of things is causing them more problems. So it's kind of why I'd, I'd be curious to see if he got the position exactly why. But. We will keep watching. Uh, before we wrap up, our producer Matt Greer is back in Houston this weekend for his 30th high school reunion, and he was kind enough to share a 30? Th- 30th. <laughs> Just- <laughs> Just checking. What Mac looks good. Congratulations, for, Mac! For a guy pushing fifty, he looks good. Um, uh, but he shared a page out of his yearbook uh, about his classmate in high school, Michael Dell. Uh, and I'm just going to read here. This is 1983. It's a little profile on Michael Dell talking about computers um, and saying talking about computers. Saying I think it would be very difficult for anyone in the future to have a job that it did, that did not in some way involve a computer. Nailed it. That's a good call by an 18-year-old. Bam. Uh, We got a minute left. 30 years from now, what's what's a kid, a senior in high school right now, thinking about that's going to be big in the future? Genetic sequencing. Really? I I think it's going to bring up a lot of moral and ethical dilemmas, but I think it's going to be a huge technology that people are going to become rely on. Mac, what the heck have you done? No, second. (laughs) Second, uh, I, I think alternative energy, or at least... You know, getting to a point where we're completely renewable—that it's going to happen. Mac comes up with bits like this, by the way. Yeah, yeah, that's what Mac does. That's what Mac does. There you go, Jason. Uh, I think we just continue to see the rollout of, of the smart home, more more smart home functions as as kids get older, ovens that cook your dinner for you while you're at work or at school, and fridges that talk man. to you and all that stuff. The proliferation of that. Steve, what do you think? Flying cars. Boom. Steve nailed it. (laughs) Up next, we're going inside the beer industry with Ken Grossman, the founder of Sierra Nevada. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Time to talk about the business of beer, so let's start with a little history. In 1980, there were eight, that's right, eight craft brewers in America. Today, there are more than 2,300 with another 1,500 breweries in the planning stages. One of the leaders of this movement has been Sierra Nevada, one of the most successful craft breweries, producing more than 800,000 barrels of beer every year. Ken Grossman is the founder and president and author of the new book, Beyond the Pale, the story of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Uh, You brewed your first batch of beer before you were in high school. Do I have that right? Oh, I was fairly young, yes. <laughs> what, uh, what got uh, young Ken Grossman interested in brewing beer? 
Actually, I had a uh, a neighbor of mine, uh, one of my best buddies, actually going through elementary and then junior high and high school, and actually later moved uh, to go away to college with him. But one of my neighbor's fathers was a very accomplished home brewer and home winemaker and, and actually a rocket scientist, and his hobby was brewing beer at home. How did that go over with your parents? I, I don't want to delve too much into your personal life, but I, I just know how surprised I would be if one of my kids came home and said, hey, I've, I've been over at my friend's house brewing some beer. Well, actually, I, it was a, a science experiment I was conducting, and of course, uh, you know, I told my mother I wasn't going to drink it. It was just an experiment I was doing. Uh, as I said in the opening, uh, 1980, um, uh, really the beginning of craft brewery, um, there was very little success out there. How did Sierra Nevada buck the trend? How did you? I mean, it, it at that point in time, did it seem like an uphill battle for you, or did it just seem like brewing beer that you really liked and cared about was just something you wanted to do? Actually, uh, the year we started, uh, we brewed our first batch, November fifteenth, nineteen eighty. There was only forty-four breweries that were, uh, were brewing companies anyway that were in operation in the U.S. It was really just about the low point in. U.S. brewing history since Prohibition, uh, since the repeal of Prohibition. Um, and it, there were actually only six of us uh, who opened between 1976 and 1981. Um, there were a couple of existing you know, small brewers, certainly around the country, but as far as the, the new upstart brewers uh, like myself, who pretty much were home brewers, um, you know, we had started uh, essentially with a glorified homebrew setup. And the marketplace seemed like it was ready for something different than American light lager, and that was about all you could buy from the mainstream brewers back then. What is the toughest part about brewing beer? Um, and it can be about anything from the brewing to the, pro- the bottling process, but I, I have to believe this is a pretty intense startup kind of business that you're doing here. It's not like today where pretty much anyone who wants can arguably start their own website. Um, what were the big challenges for you early on? Well, back when I started, there was really no suppliers to to supply to a, a little fledgling industry. So you couldn't go buy a mash tun or buy a kettle or buy little fermenters, at least not in this country. And so back in those days, uh, in all the the home brewers who wanted to go pro pretty much had to build their own equipment or convert it from uh, dairy equipment. In our case, we we went around and scrounged dairies and soft drink plants and bought you know, little uh, stainless steel tanks out of a defunct dairy for a fermenter or converted some other kind of food processing vessel into a, a, a brewing piece. Um, but as far as the, the challenges, besides having to build all your own equipment back then, um, you know, we're dealing with agricultural products, so the you know the, the barley is grown in different places and different seasons. Uh, uh, you know, the harvests are all a little bit different. We're using hops, which are also a uh, you know a natural raw material that uh, you know, may be a little bit different one year to the next. So, trying to put all those things together and then rely on uh, yeast to convert the the malt sugars into alcohol and carbon dioxide and do that with uh, you know consistency and um, not have any uh, inclusion of loud yeast or any bacteria that might spoil the flavor. Um, so keeping a, a handle on sanitation as well as just trying to you know, deal with varying raw materials uh, was some of our earlier challenges. You mentioned consistency, and I have to believe that has got to be one of the biggest challenges, particularly as you grow. I would think that maintaining quality 
is easier when you're just starting out. But as Sierra Nevada has grown dramatically over the years, you're now one of the biggest brewers in the country. What's the key to maintaining that quality? Actually, it's the opposite. When you're really small, it's pretty challenging to get the consistency. Uh, you know, when you've got uh, one batch uh, going through the process at a time, and you maybe don't have any kind of uh, accurate temperature control or automation in some areas where you know controlling temperatures is pretty vital to a lot of steps in the brewing process. And again, maintaining that maintaining that sanitation throughout the process is, is harder when you're very small and using primitive equipment. So as we've grown, we've invested significantly in quality control measures and state-of-the-art equipment. Um, our fermentation tanks uh, you know, are very hygienic and custom-built for us now. We're using brewing equipment built in Germany by companies that have been building breweries for hundreds of years, so they've got a lot more knowledge and, and um, uh, engineering expertise, and so you can get a, a lot more consistent and actually better product with um, you know, some of the, the modern um, developments in, in brewing engineering and equipment. So you know, when we were small, we probably struggled a lot more with batch-to-batch variability than we do today uh, with uh, you know, a, a level of automation and, and of more hygienic designed equipment. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Ken Grossman, president and founder of Sierra Nevada, author of the new book, Beyond the Pale, the story of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Uh, um, it seems to me, and again, I'm, I'm not a beer drinker, but it seems to me like the craft brewers in general stick together. And yet, at the end of the day, you are in competition with one another. How do you view your competition? How do you think about who your competi- competition is? Well, yeah, you're, you're right. We do tend to stick together. And um, when I started, I mentioned there were only six small breweries in the United States. And uh, we were all on a first-name basis and would see each other regularly. And if somebody needed some malt or some hops because they were short or even yeast in some cases, uh, your, your brethren would, would be happy to help you out and, and loan you, uh, you know, what you needed. And I think the brewing industry historically probably, at least the brewers anyway, maybe not the sales guys, but the brewers have always had a lot of camaraderie. You know, we're in a, a business that's a mixture of art and science, and um, there's been a lot of sharing of knowledge and, and helping brewers out, um, you know, both in, in the U.S., and, and we're friendly with brewers around the world, actually. Um, and today, I think, you know, part of the success of, of craft brewing in America has been because of this camaraderie that's been fostered amongst the brewers. Um, you know, we, we do... Uh, all sort of see that the, the the rising tide is lifting all boats, and so we we try to help each other, um, you know, in, encourage brewers to improve quality and consistency, and uh, to share knowledge where um, where we can to help each other out. So it's um, it's a, a big fraternity. Um, most all of us get along very well. Uh, I've got a a brewer visiting me today, Benny from Russian River, who's a, a good friend and a great brewer, and. We're, we're actually doing a real fun project next year to sort of kick off our uh, new brewery that we're opening in North Carolina. We're doing a 12-pack a that'll have 12 of our uh, our friends in the brewing industry come and brew beers at, at our brewery. So we'll have 12 different beers brewed by, uh, by us with 12 different uh, brewers helping uh, along the way. So, um, again, to, to show that spirit of camaraderie and support for the industry. You've got your standard Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, but you've also got a number of seasonal beers. 
Uh, I know that our producer, among others, is counting the days until your celebration comes out. Um, how big a part of your business are seasonal beers? You know, they're a significant part of our business, and, and not necessarily just in volume. They, they do contribute certainly to some volume, but it's more to you know, excite and delight the, the consumers out there who want to experiment and and want to um, you know try uh, you know wheat beers and stouts and dry hop beers and barley wines and Belgium style beers. So uh, we brew dozens of different beers, and, and most of them aren't widely distributed, but we we do have. Uh, a range of them that do get into lots of markets, and and for us, one, it's fun to do. I mean, as brewers, uh, just like as a as a chef, you wouldn't want to cook the the same dish over and over again. So, uh, we get a lot of enjoyment out of experimenting with with beer and brewing styles. And what's made the craft brewing in this America in America such a popular um, thing is is you know all the fun and experimentation we've we've had as a as a group of of entrepreneurs and brewers. Uh, what, what's happened in the U.S. with the explosion of craft brewing, and there's essentially now uh, more than one brewer a day opening up uh, their doors. So it's it's really been an explosion of, of craft brewing. Uh, but it's spread worldwide. Now we've got brewers from all over the world coming to visit America to see what, what we've done that's made uh, you know, our industry so fun and exciting. Uh, even countries that had proud brewing traditions like Germany uh, are coming to visit brewers in America to to find out what's uh, you know what's been happening over here and and why we've been able to reengage the consumer so well. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Ken Grossman, president and founder of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. You are also the owner, and I am curious to what extent you have thought about taking your private company public, because I have to believe that there are plenty of fans of yours out there who would love to own shares of Sierra Nevada stock. Well, I mean, over the years, we've been approached by uh, you know a whole range of, uh, of people wanting to take us public or invest in the company or buy us. And um, at, at this point in time, I've, I've had really no interest in, in doing any of those things. Um, I had a partner quite a few years ago I bought out, and now I've got uh, two of my children actively involved in the business. Uh, I've got a, a 35-year-old daughter named Sierra and a son named Brian, who's uh, actually moved up to North Carolina to help head up uh, that, that brewery out there. So it's a family business, and, and we've uh, we've gotten a lot of uh, enjoyment out of building the company and, and really haven't had a, a, a reason or a desire to, uh, to either go public or sell out. One of the things we like to focus on as investors at The Motley Fool is the importance of corporate culture. Uh, I'm not asking you for a job, but I am curious. What kind of fringe benefits am I getting if I work at Sierra Nevada? Am I am I getting free beer? Oh, oh yes, you're getting free <laughs> beer. We have a on-site health clinic. We have a, a restaurant, and employees get to, uh, dollars to to spend over there. Um, we've got um, a daycare center on site. We've got um, uh, gardens. We've got a couple acres of uh, food gardens for uh, supporting our restaurant. Um, we, we have a whole range of them. We have a massage therapist uh, on site. Uh, we, we, we put a, a bit of emphasis on health and wellness uh, in our organization. So we've, we've got a couple of, of health care providers. Um, so a whole range of things. Okay, I've changed my mind. Now I am asking you for a job. Um, uh, kidding. I, I would be remiss, though, if I didn't mention uh, one thing that leaped out from your book, and that is something you refer to as beer camp. 
uh, which sounds like something out of a dream Homer Simpson probably has. Uh, mm-hmm. What is Beer Camp? And for people who are interested, how can they sign up for it? Well, we started it uh, quite a few years ago. We've got a, a small 10-barrel um, or 300-gallon research brewery, and that's the same size brewery I started out with in 1980. And we do a lot of experimenting. We uh, play with uh, new new hop varieties or different yeast strains and, and make a lot of small batches of beer in, in uh, the small brew house. And we came up with the idea of let's go and bring some of the the store owners, the restaurant owners, people who really uh, maybe don't know a lot about beer and want to, want to learn more. So we we bring them to Chico. Uh, they spend a day sort of learning about the brewery, the brewing process. They get to then come up with a brand. Um, they can name it, uh, come up with the label artwork, um, come up with a style, and they work with our brewers and, and come up with uh, a recipe, and they brew that beer the next day. And then we... Uh, ferment it and keg it up and get the label uh, registered and, and try to send some beer back to their hometown so they can um, enjoy it with their friends. So we started doing that seven or eight years ago and have now taken it. So we have a, a contest. You can win a trip to beer camp and you need to produce a video that uh, amazes us and submit it. Uh, it's actually a contest is going on right now and we'll... Uh, judge your entrance and 20 people will get to come to Chico and and get to brew beer with us. I'm looking at our engineer on the other side of the glass in our studio. His eyes are lighting up. I'm I'm pretty sure he's going to be applying. Abraham Lincoln once said, I am a firm believer in the people. If given the truth, they can be depended upon to meet any national crisis. The great point is to bring them the real facts and beer. Hell yeah! I like beer! Ken Grossman's new book, Beyond the Pale, The Story of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, is available everywhere. So go out and pick up a copy for the beer lover in your life. Ken Grossman, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio once again, Tim Hansen, Matt Argusinger, and Jason Moser. Uh, guys, before we get to the stocks on our radar, I should mention for our Canadian listeners out there, uh, and we do have them, dozens of them, uh, I am hosting an event uh, on Tuesday, October 1st at the University of Toronto. This is for Canadian investors. Uh, but wherever you are in Canada, you can watch the event. We're going to stream it online. Uh, all the details are at fool.ca slash October 1, and that's the numeral one. Uh, that's our Canadian website, fool.ca slash October 1. Um, let's get to the stocks on our radar. We'll bring in our man Steve Broido from the other side of the glass to hit you with a question. Tim Hanson, what do you got? I've been uh, struggling with Urban Outfitters. Um, which <laughs> struggling? Has been, well, I've been going back and forth on it. You know, It's on my radar, so it definitely fits here. <laughs> yes. I, I can't say if I like it or not yet. Um, on the plus side, they've got uh, a very strong concept in anthropology and free people um, and a historical great track record of inventory management, which is tough to do in a business like retail. Um, on the other side, Urban Outfitters, to me, which is their biggest concept, is a little bit on the trendy side. I think there's fashion risk there. And the stock still looks expensive, even after um, some recent declines on on some weak guidance um, that they gave for the duration of the year. So, you know, if, they, if those anthropology and free people concepts keep firing and the inventory stays clean, probably a winner from here. Um, but 
there's still, there are risks. And the ticker symbol? Uh, U-R-B-N. I was going to say before I turn it over to you, I, I, when you said you struggle with Urban Outfitters, I, f- I feel exactly that way whenever I walk into one of those <laughs> I'm just like, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be What do there. I make of you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Steve, question about Urban Outfitters? What is the highest margin item you could foresee them selling in the future? You know, I read this week that they're going to open a cafeteria in uh, wow. in one of their ur- in bar in one of their Urban Outfitter stores. So I would say, as with all food service businesses, the highest margin item they could sell is alcohol. <laughs> nice. Matt Argusinger, what do you got? Sure, I got a company all of us are at the full here are pretty familiar with Paychex ticker P A Y X. Disclosure: I own it in one of my in my IRA, and I I, I don't know why I've just owned it for a long time. Uh, they report earnings on Monday. It's a little bit of a barometer for kind of what's going on in the small to mid-sized business uh, economy. Um, at the same time, Paychex has, has really struggled. You've got Intuit, not so much ADP, which is the other sort of other big payroll processing company, because um, they're really focused on larger businesses. But you do have Intuit uh, and a smaller company um, called Ultimate Software, which is really kind of they, they're taking a lot of share in the payroll processing and human resource market. So just want to see what Paychex has to report on on Monday. It's also a taper play. It's a bad, it's a bit of, you're right. It is a bit it of a taper play. play. Steve, any questions about the sexy world of payroll processing? Sure. Aren't there just cheaper competitors? What is Paychex offering that's superior than a lower cost provider? No, that's and that is the great point. I mean, you, like Intuit's got. Thank you. Intuit, <laughs> done. No, Intuit's got you know QuickBooks, which you know for a long time was was not you know wasn't sophisticated enough to really handle what what Paychex did, but now it is, and it's it's in the cloud, and you know a lot of companies are using it for their enterprise resource management. So launching next week, the Broido Short Fund. <laughs> good, I will say, good brand though. Sure. Good brand name. Paychex, just a better brand name than... It's such a hassle to, to switch. That would be that probably switching the biggest costs. defense. The switching yeah. costs are huge. Right on. Jason, what do you got? Yeah. Uh, so, Clean Energy Fuels, which is uh, ticker CLNE, has the backing of co-founder T. Boone Pickens and CEO and co-founder Andrew Littlefair. Um, Littlefair just bought another 127,000 shares in the company, which amounted to about $1.5 million. But uh, Clean Energy Fuels is building out America's natural gas highway, which is essentially just a network of natural gas stations around the country strategically placed to aid the trucking industry. And so they focus on the trucking markets as well as uh, their other core markets of, of refuse and taxis and airports and other mass transits of local and state governments. So, uh, you know, as they try to build out the uh, the network to provide the natural gas for all of these vehicles and working relationships with companies like Cummins and, and um, you know, Westport uh, Innovations, uh, they stand a chance to uh, to be a big part of the of the energy infrastructure in the next uh, ten years. Steve, is natural gas sort of an infinite resource for us, or is it a, a capped one? Well, if a hundred years is infinite, then yes. <laughs> but those are just estimates, Steve, and we could certainly use for a us, lot more and export a lot more as infinite. well. But there is a glut of it, they say, and so it's certainly something I feel like we're going to have to integrate into our policy at some point. All right, that's going to do it for this week's show. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl, our engineer is Steve Broido. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.